It was a quiet Friday night in East Texas. The lights on Kilgore's high school football field were dark. The Bulldogs were playing out of town. But business at the Kentucky Fried Chicken was hopping. There was a line at the counter right up until closing time at 10. By the time the front door locked behind the last customer, there were only five people left inside. The assistant manager, 37-year-old Mary Tyler, the cook, 20-year-old Joey Johnson, the packer, 39-year-old Opie Hughes, and a couple of Joey's fraternity brothers from Kilgore College, 20-year-olds David Maxwell and Monty Landers. David actually worked at the KFC. He got the job about a week earlier, but he was off that night. He was just there to pick up Joey since he'd borrowed his motorcycle. Twelve hours later, all five people would be found in a remote field 14 miles away, shot through the head, execution style. And for the next 25 years, who did it and why would remain a mystery. A mystery that even today has never been completely solved. I'm Amy. Thanks for watching True Crime Recaps. Now, this is one of those cases with so many twists and turns, it'll make you dizzy. And over the years, a lot of the details have morphed and changed like a game of telephone. So to bring you the most accurate information we could find, we went back to the newspaper archives, the trial testimony, and the court documents from the appeals that came after. So with that, let's go to Kilgore, Texas, a little town known as the City of Stars. Not because celebrities call it home, and not because of its amazing view of the night sky, but because of the twinkling lights on the dozens of oil rigs that tower high above the little town. Oil, oil, and more oil. That's what the town was founded on. And in this story, that's where death found five hardworking people just before midnight on September 23rd, 1983. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's rewind the clock back to 9 p.m., now, sometime between 9 and 10, a woman and her boyfriend had a craving for the colonel's secret recipe. When they pulled up to Kentucky Fried Chicken, they noticed a white van parked behind the restaurant. It stuck out because it wasn't in a parking space. It was just sort of pulled in near the dumpster. So as they were waiting to order, two men got in line behind them. The four of them were close enough to the counter to overhear an employee's phone call. She was telling someone that they'd missed the afternoon deposit and there was $2,000 in the register. That employee was 17-year-old Kim Miller. On the other end of the call was her mother, Mary Tyler, the store's assistant manager. She'd clocked out earlier that day around 5, but Kim needed her to come back to deal with the deposit. Now, meanwhile, this woman and her boyfriend that were standing in line, they got their food and they sat down to eat. The men behind her took their order to go. Now, as she was eating and idly, you know, looking out the window, she saw them walking toward the back of the parking lot. When she and her boyfriend left just before 10, she happened to notice that the white van was still by the dumpster. Around the same time they were leaving, Mary arrived. 10 minutes later at 10.06 p.m., Kim clocked out and locked the front door behind her, just as David Maxwell and his friend Monty Landers walked in to wait for Joey to finish closing up. Maybe 10 to 20 minutes after that, a man driving by said he saw a dark dining area, but the lights were on in the back. He noticed that the back door was open and a light-colored van was parked nearby. Not long after he passed by, around 10.30, another driver also noticed a light-colored van facing the wrong way in the drive through lane. Now, neither of them saw anyone around. 
A few months later, a man came forward with a more detailed story about a near fender bender with a white van coming out of the restaurant around 10 p.m. He claims he saw three people inside dressed in KFC uniforms screaming and hollering. Well, unlike the other witnesses, he also says he saw the driver. He says it was a white man with long, straight hair and a beard, but the timing and his memory, those proved to be spotty. And the general consensus was that his statement was less than reliable and possibly influenced by the media coverage. Meanwhile, Mary Tyler's husband, Billy, he was waiting for her at home. By 1045, he was wondering what was taking his wife so long. See, he used to work at a KFC too. That's where they met. So he had a pretty good idea how long it took to close up and make the bank deposit. And when no one picked up at the store, something in his gut told him to take a quick drive up there and check it out. At the same time, his stepdaughter Kim was also on her way to the store with a friend. She was hoping to catch her mom still there so she could borrow some money. Some reports say Billy got there first, others say it was Kim. Either way, they found the same horrifying scene. The back door open, trash bags left on the ground, signs of a fight in the kitchen, flour and uniform hats all over the floor, a dented wall and blood pooled behind the empty counter. A trail of it led to the office and splattered all over the desk and drawers. Empty cash registers were up front, and a mess of stuff looked like it had been rifled through under the counters. And worst of all, a couple of cars, including Mary's, were in the parking lot. But there wasn't a soul inside. The Plainview, Texas paper says Billy sent Kim and her friend to check out the hospital. Maybe Mary or one of the other employees was there. But no one from the KFC had been admitted. So that's when he told her to call the police. That was around 11.30. And Billy wasn't the only one wondering what was going on. Lena, David's three-month pregnant wife, was watching the clock too. When it struck 3 a.m. and her husband still hadn't walked through the door and Monty wasn't answering either, she called the police. And that is how they found out it wasn't three people missing from the KFC. It was five. At 10 a.m. the next morning, about 14 miles southwest of Kilgore, in the next county over, a man saw something strange in the oil field where he was supposed to be working a shift. From his vantage point behind the steering wheel of his truck, it looked like a bunch of clothes laying partly in the road on the edge of the grass. But on closer inspection, he realized how wrong he was. David, Mary, Monty, and Joey lay on their stomachs side by side. They were all pointing in the same direction as if they'd been forced to lay face down on the ground. They were probably expecting their kidnappers to run away and leave them there, so they did what they were told. But when they lay down, they rested their heads on their forearms to keep their faces out of the dirt. But the attackers didn't take the chance to escape. They were all shot twice in the head and back, execution style, all except Joey. He was shot three times in the head, the neck, and the side, like maybe he tried to stand up. The sheriff speculated to the Kilgore News Herald that they must have been forced to cross a cattle guard, step over a locked gate, then walk down the road about 100 yards before they were forced to the ground. Only Opie looked like she tried to make a run for it. She was found about 40 yards from the gate, and the others were farther down the road. Clumps of grass and her own hair were still clutched in her hands. She was shot twice in the head, but it would take another 20 years to learn that she'd also been raped. Though the scene wasn't just horrifying, it was strange. 
They were all missing their wallets and jewelry, and since cash was also taken from the KFC, the motive seemed pretty clear, money, but why kidnap everyone in the store? Why would you travel through winding back roads to this out-of-the-way spot with five people only to rob, rape, and execute them? Why kill them at all? The murder weapons offered another clue about the hell they went through in their last hours. According to the Houston Chronicle, three of them were shot with two different guns, a 38 and a 357. Two were shot twice with the same gun, but both guns can use the same ammo. So when they examined the evidence left behind, ballistic experts thought seven bullets shared the same markings, like they'd all come from the 38. And since that gun only holds six rounds, they figured it must have been reloaded or there was a third gun involved. Now, this theory of a third gun held by a third person is a critical part of this case, but we're not quite there yet. Because their bodies had one more clue to share. A broken fingernail clung to Joey's waistband. Was it one of the killers? Within hours, the place was crawling with Texas Rangers, investigators from three different counties, emergency responders, media, looky-loos trying to get a glimpse of this real-life horror show. And back at the KFC, the scene was just as chaotic. Now, Kilgore was no stranger to violence, but this kind of robbery, kidnapping, and mass murder was unlike anything that they'd ever had to deal with before. And to make matters worse, the crime was all tangled up in jurisdictional red tape and manpower issues from the get-go. Russ County took the murders, Gregg County and the Kilgore Sheriff Department got the KFC robbery and kidnapping, and neighboring Smith County was better funded, and so they stepped in with an assist. And the Texas Rangers tried to head it all up, and on and on it went. From day one, the rumor mill spun stories about a drug deal gone wrong and a devil's recipe for meth stored in the KFC office safe. Crazy stuff, especially since nothing like that was ever found. And if you had a drug recipe for meth, would you store it in a safe at work? And none of the victims had any history with or signs of drug use. But officers were following up on any and all leads the best that they could. Oh, eight days after the murders, they had a conversation with a local drug dealer who had allegedly been taking credit for the slaughter. His name was James Earl Mankins Jr. He was a lifelong troublemaker who just happened to be the son of a state representative. But once the cops got to him, he was quick to swear he was somewhere else on the Friday night in question. But as they were talking, they noticed a fingernail on his right hand was torn. They made a cast of his finger and warned him, not to leave town, basically. So as all that was going on, more information about what happened that night was coming in. One important clue came from a woman renting a house near the oil field where the bodies were found. At 10.57 that Friday night, she said she saw a van with its headlights off idling in her driveway for a few minutes, and then it drove away. She couldn't see exactly what color it was or who was driving. And then about 12 minutes later, maybe a little less, a series of gunshots went off nearby. There was five minutes of silence just before another shot was fired. Now, this was out in the country and it's Texas, so gunshots, not that unusual. And she didn't call it in. Not until all hell broke loose the next morning. So between that and the other witness reports about seeing a white van behind the restaurant as late as 1030, well, the police felt confident that they had a working time frame, but they still didn't know why. Why would you take and try to control five people from the restaurant and then shoot them? Was it just a random attack? And why take the victims out of the store at all? 
Meanwhile, investigators across the region were following the robbery angle, and they were shaking down known criminals with a history of burglary. Oh, here's where it gets even more complicated. In the days after the murders, CBS 19 says a lead came in from the Smith County Sheriff, pointing them to three known offenders, Darnell Hartsfield, Romeo Pinkerton, and Elton Winston. And sure enough, a wanted-for-questioning poster was created with their pictures front and center. Now, you remember that woman and her boyfriend who got that late-night dinner at KFC? Well, she came forward to share what she heard Kim say on the phone, that call about the money in the register, and she identified Darnell as the guy behind her in line. Though Darnell and Romeo were cousins and career criminals with a long list of convictions for burglaries. They lived in Smith County in the much larger Texas town of Tyler, about 30 minutes west of Kilgore. So picture 70,000 people to Kilgore's 11,000. Just three days after the murders, Darnell and a partner robbed the Tyler Food Mart convenience store at gunpoint. They got about $300 and they rifled through the shelves under the counter looking for more. And then they ran, leaving the clerk alive to ID Darnell's mugshot. By November, he was in prison doing time for that robbery and another burglary. He was questioned and asked to take a polygraph about the murders when they picked him up in Tyler. This was common at the time. People that they were picking up for these kinds of crimes, they were all kind of questioned and given this polygraph. According to the Houston Chronicle, he denied ever being in the restaurant and he passed the poly. He did nine years for the robbery and was paroled in 1992. He did nine years for the robbery and was paroled in 1992. Three years later, he's back behind bars with a 40-year sentence for drug-related charges and engaging in what they're calling organized criminal activity. Meanwhile, his cousin, Romeo Pinkerton, was also questioned in 1983, but he claimed he was in a Texas prison four hours away on the night of the murders. In January 1984, he broke his parole with another robbery and went back to prison where he stayed until January 1988. A few months later, he was caught in another burglary and went back to prison on a 50-year sentence. So back in Kilgore, investigators are really liking this guy James Earl Mankins Jr. for the KFC job. Not only is he a known scumbag, but that torn fingernail seems like a smoking gun to them. And frankly, they don't have too much else to go on. But Russ County didn't think the fingernail was enough to prosecute, and the investigation slowly loses steam over the next 12 years. And then, in early 1995, a grand jury came together to start hearing testimony with an eye toward putting Jimmy Earl away. And by the end of April of that year, he's indicted on five counts of capital murder, mainly based on one expert's testimony that the ridges on his fingernails matched the fingernail found on Joey Johnson. But while James is sitting in jail for seven months awaiting trial, they do more testing on the fingernail using newer technology, and they discover something shocking. It's not Jimmy's fingernail. It's Mary Tyler's, one of the victims. So with nothing else linking him to the crime, they drop the charges and set him free. Another five years goes by with no breaks in the case. Then, in 2000, Russ County brings a former FBI agent on board to figure this thing out once and for all, and he jumps in to take a fresh look at the evidence, which by now is scattered in holding facilities across Texas. What little of it there was. But he quickly realizes there are two pieces of evidence that might yield more clues after all these years. A blood-stained box that once held rolls of cash register tape under the counter— 
and a blood-spattered napkin found in the back of the store. Now, at the time of the murders, DNA testing was a few years in the future, but now that technology had caught up, they ran the blood through the National Criminal Database and got a match. Two matches. Darnell Hartsfield's blood was on the box, and his cousin Romeo Pinkerton's blood was on the napkin. So when they asked him about it, again, Darnell said he wasn't there that night, but they took a sample of his blood to confirm the test. As for his cousin, it turned out that he wasn't in prison that night like he said he was. He'd actually been paroled two days before the KFC murders. But questions remained. Was this a crime of opportunity? Why would they drive from Tyler to Kilgore to rob a KFC? And why kidnap and kill the people in the store? Their criminal resumes didn't include murder, at least nothing that they'd ever been caught for. And the DNA evidence was strong, but the prosecution wanted more before they brought charges. So they took another look at that white van. In the early 80s, Darnell said he lived with Elton Winston. Remember him from the Wanted for Questioning poster back in 1983? Well, as it happened, Elton was arrested on a traffic stop in March of 1984 while driving a white utility van like the kind the witnesses saw at the scene of the crime. But did he own it five months earlier when the KFC thing went down? And did Darnell borrow it? Prosecutors said yes, Darnell was driving it. They based that on a witness who said he was almost hit by a white van driven by a man he ID'd as Darnell a week after the murders. And then in 2003, they made what might be the most shocking discovery in the whole case. So you remember Opie Hughes had been raped, right? But it took 20 years to figure it out. Well, we're there now. We're 20 years in the future now. So when she was found, court documents say that Opie was still wearing her uniform, but she wasn't wearing underwear. So no one thought to test the crotch of her pants for semen until 2003. That's when they found DNA evidence from an unknown man. Not her husband, not Darnell, not Romeo, not any suspect mentioned so far. And when they ran it through the database, it didn't come back to any known offenders. According to court documents, all they know for sure is that it came from someone of African-American descent. And whoever this man was may have been firing that possible third weapon you heard about earlier. And if the witness testimony was right about Darnell being behind her in line at the KFC with another guy, well, that might have been this third man. Since she said the man behind her was taller than the guy he was with and Darnell is shorter than Romeo, so it probably wasn't him in the store before the attack started. How weird is that? So Darnell was indicted on perjury charges for lying to the grand jury about not being in the KFC when his blood DNA put him there. And since he had other felonies on his record, the perjury conviction tipped the scales just enough to put him in prison for life. So what about his cousin, Romeo? Well, he was paroled in December 2004, but he wasn't out for long. About seven months later, he robbed an elementary school in Tyler— for who knows what reason, and went back to prison. So both men were already behind bars when they were indicted for the murders. Now, Romeo's trial was first, and the state thought it had a good case, what with the blood DNA and all, but there were some problems. Back in 83, evidence wasn't logged and stored the way it should have been, and all the jurisdictional issues confused things even more. And to make matters worse, 
nine of the 10 rolls of film taken of the crime scenes couldn't be developed back then. So they had only one roll to work with. And that one salvageable roll didn't include any pictures of the counter or the shelves under the counter where the bloody box was or where the bloody napkin was in the back. The sheriff couldn't say for sure that he saw the box there, but the Texas Ranger testified it was there when he did his first walkthrough of the KFC. They also had a prison snitch that testified to a conversation he had with Romeo about the murders. In this conversation, he allegedly said that he and Darnell did it with a third guy. And since the information about this mysterious third man wasn't revealed until his trial started, the prosecution made the connection that only one of the killers would know about a third man. So two weeks into his trial, he changed his plea to guilty to avoid the death penalty, and he got five life sentences instead. In 2008, Darnell's trial started, and just like his cousin, he also got five life sentences. And from that day to this, they've both insisted they're innocent. And as for the mysterious third man, well, investigators say the search continues. So what do you think? Did they get it right? Or are the wrong men serving time for someone else's crime? Let's talk about it down below. Meantime, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. And don't go away without tapping subscribe and the bell so you never miss a recap. You can see another one right now. I'll see you soon.